Hi guys, welcome to the first episode of Lost in Place. Today I'm here with Daniel Shukin. Hi Daniel. Hello. Who are you, Daniel? Who am I? That's a really philosophical and existential question that I don't feel I'm qualified to answer. I am, I'm riding a motorcycle around the world at this point, but I'm stuck in Turkey because of the recent global apocalypse and I'm bored like most people. And so I suppose we're going to talk about it. Uh, so first question is how long have you been riding? Well, I guess around the world, really, because how many countries have you been to now? Uh, Turkey is number 64. So I, I hadn't realized it was that many. Yeah, there was a lot of little ones in Africa. They, they kind of added up. But it's been three years of this. I guess the quick backstory is I grew up in California. And in uh, January of 2017, I rode from there to Argentina and then flew to Europe and rode around Europe a bit. And I had kind of planned that that was going to be my trip. And then I was going to go back home and start life again and have some sort of inspiration for starting a new job career or something like that. But it didn't work out that way. I, after about three months on the road, I decided I wanted to keep traveling. So you made it to Argentina in three months or that was included in the time it took you to get to Europe as well? No, three months was more of just the time when I realized I wanted to keep doing this. Oh. So it took me about five months to get from California to Buenos Aires. And then, so that was the end of May. And then I flew to Europe, flew the bike to Europe as well, and rode around there until October or so. And then I went back home as I had planned, but instead of staying and starting life over again, I, uh, I switched my bikes. I got more of a dual sport type. I had a Triumph Bonneville at first, which was is really a cool bike, but not good for what I wanted to do, considering that I wanted to go to Africa. So I got a Suzuki DR650, and I modified it a bit for traveling. And then in March of of 2018, I sent it to London and then rode from London down to Spain, took a boat from Spain to Morocco, and then rode down the west coast of Africa to Cape Town and back up the east to Egypt. And that took almost two years, 20 months, I think. And then from that point, I took a boat from Alexandria, Egypt, up to Greece. And that's when I met you and took a short break over this winter, about a month back home to take care of some visas and things, and then came back. And my plan for this year was to ride to Vladivostok, Russia, east coast of Russia, and do some kind of infamous bad roads along the way. But unfortunately, with coronavirus and the world pretty much shutting itself down, as far as I got was Turkey. So I'm here waiting for things to hopefully open up in the near future and I can go somewhere, although I'm not really sure where that's going to be yet. So many, many questions. Uh, one is like, why did you even start riding? I mean, when, when did you get your first bike? When did you first learn to ride? So it was pretty late in life for me. It was maybe... 10 years ago or so. So I'm 37 now. I think I was 27 or 28. My first bike was a Harley Sportster. <laughs> I kind of can't picture you on a Harley. Oh, uh, you could have then. Yeah, no, I was, that bike actually fit my personality much more than my DR650 does now. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I had the three-quarter open face helmet that was painted up all psychedelic green and gold candy and i don't get the point of those helmets those ones with the open face i mean if you crash your bike and just fuck up your face aren't you gonna kind of wish you were dead at that point possibly i mean it's not that i have the prettiest face to begin with so i mean it's i don't know how much damage i could really do but if you take off half your jaw you might feel differently about it maybe so but i did actually crash my harley 
wearing an open face helmet and I was okay. Well, my face was okay. I broke my ankle. Ooh, how'd you manage that? It was my second kind of long ride. I rode from California to Montana with a buddy. I was doing like this kind of easy rider thing where I didn't really have bags. I just had a backpack and I piled stuff up (laughs) on my fender and it worked fine, except that I had a flannel shirt that I tied up on the back of my pack and it was a little loose and it kept whipping me in the face as I was riding. And I was turning around trying to fix it. And I got off onto the shoulder into some gravel and went off the road. And it, I would have been fine, but the bike landed on my ankle and broke it. Ouch. Had, had that not happened, I would have literally walked away. But yeah, so I ended up having to rent a pickup truck, throw the bike in the back and drive it the rest of the way home. I guess that's where you're lucky that most American vehicles are automatic. At least you could do that with one foot. Ouch. Yeah, well, and luckily it was my left ankle that was broken. So I still had my right for driving. So yeah, that was good. But yeah, I was also, I didn't have good boots on. I mean, I was riding in a pair of Levi's and a leather jacket. It was, I I probably wouldn't ride like that today. Okay, so going from not great boots and a leather jacket to the kind of gear that you wear now, because now you actually wear some pretty decent stuff when you're on the bike. How long did it take you to figure out that you needed to upgrade what you were wearing in order to feel secure? I mean, especially going to places like the African continent where good medical care is not always a guarantee. And had you figured that out before you did Europe? When did you start upgrading your gear? Right. Uh, It was kind of a progression. So after I broke my ankle, then proper boots became a thing. So I got good boots, but I was still riding in jeans. And I got a leather jacket with pretty good armor, but it was leather. And I rode with that stuff all the way to Argentina. I said that's five months you spent in that gear then. Yeah, I mean, it was, I don't know, the, the weather was pretty dry. So I had a sort of plastic overcoat rain suit, but I didn't have to use it very much because the seasons just happened to be right and I kind of got lucky. And the jeans were Kevlar and they had some knee pads. But at that time I was riding on mostly on pavement and I only came off the bike a couple times at low speed. So it never really made a problem. What changed my mind about things is when I got to Europe in June and it was raining all the time, I flew into Ireland and my boots weren't waterproof. My rain suit was becoming a pain in the ass to deal with. And so when I was in England, I got a good Gore-Tex Revit suit that I wore around the rest of Europe and a pair of good boots that were waterproof as well. And that was when I kind of realized that good gear is a priority. So then naturally, when I went back and kind of retooled the bike and my kit for Africa, I got the climb suit that I have now, the CD boots and, you know, good gloves and a good helmet. It made it a lot more, I don't want to say comfortable, but it takes some of the bite of the elements away. I would agree with that. Okay, so another question, because I kind of creeped on your blog a little bit earlier, you know, as you do. And one of the things that you had said is that when you you had gotten the triumph with because it was aesthetically pleasing, one. Yes. But then going from that bike to your curb bike, which, you know, good bike, but it's not that pretty. You know, how did you end up choosing what you are on now? Yeah, so when, when I first started, I was, you know like everybody who does this is kind of clueless. You just really don't know what you're getting into. And I had the kind of any bike for any ride mentality, which I still believe in that you can go a lot of places with, you know, there's a guy who rode around the world on a Vespa, so it can be done. But the thing I didn't like about the Bonneville is there were a lot of roads in South America that I could do, but I had to go so slowly because of the short travel suspension and the low ground clearance that it just wasn't fun. Right. And it literally started to rattle nuts and bolts loose. 
use. So I realized that if I was going to keep doing this, I needed something a bit more versatile, a bit more, you know, dual sport. And when I was in Nicaragua, I met a South African couple who had been traveling on DR650s for I think seven years or something at that time. And that was three years ago and they're still over there. They're still in Bolivia now, but they talked up the bikes pretty well. Had talked about how they're not very fast and they don't handle very well, but they just keep going. And I figured that was something I needed. So as I was going still on the Triumph, I did a lot of research on the DR and checked out the aftermarket for some of the things I would need, the bigger tank and carburetor upgrades and that sort of thing. And the fact that it has a carburetor in the first place, which is uh, me being kind of mechanical, is a lot easier for me to tune and repair than uh, computer-controlled fuel injection. All those things kind of contributed to the choice on the bike. Basically, what it came down to is it's the simplest thing that I can find. It's easy to work on parts are pretty readily available. It's really reliable. It's got now 50,000 miles on it. And I've done a, a bit of maintenance and rebuilt some things, but it's still going and it's still running good. That's really what I was looking for. I mean, were you ever tempted to go for one of the bigger adventure bikes like KTM or BMW or? No, I, I never really was, to be honest. For one, I, I like the lower weight of the DR650 compared to say the 1200 GS or even the 800. And me not being such a good off-road rider, a lighter bike helps. And for what I wanted to do, I just didn't see the benefit in the bigger bikes, you know, considering. I mean, you're small guys. I've seen much smaller people still go for those bikes because of the reputation that they have. Sure. I think a lot of that reputation is clever marketing. They're not bad bikes, but I don't feel like you need 1200 cc's to do what I'm doing. Like the 1200 GS is kind of the extreme example as far as a big adventure bike, but you know, you can still go most places with that bike. You may be limited on the more technical stuff, but it'll get you there. I've just never really been into it, been an overkill kind of guy. I've always liked my vehicles just as much as I needed. And with that reasoning, the 650 seemed like it was kind of the Goldilocks, the just right size for what I wanted to do. So with that being said, because you said a second ago that you weren't that great off-road, but you've been at this for three years now. Maybe not on this bike, but you have been basically traveling for three years now. Do you still consider yourself a mediocre off-road rider? Or? I, well, I've improved quite a lot. I mean, I really didn't ride any off-road until I started Africa. I took an off-road course when I was back home in the midst of switching the bikes, and I learned sort of the basics and fundamentals, but I really didn't get to practice much until I actually got into Africa. And so I learned a lot in the first couple of months just by practice and experience. And I mean, I can get by on most things as far as terrain goes, but I'm definitely not as good as somebody who's been riding dirt bikes since they were five years old or, you know, rode motocross or enduro or something like that. It's, um, yeah, that's a whole different class of people though. Those are people who learned how to ride on difficult terrain before they were old enough to know to be afraid of falling bones or, <laughs> right you know at that age you're still dumb enough to think man this is a great idea yeah and i think there's something to be said for that and even now i don't really think so much about getting hurt if i fall because i've fallen so many times off-road at low speed and I, my gear is good and so i don't get hurt i guess my concern is more about getting stuck on a trail that i'm in over my head and you know i, I get in a situation where i've gone so far into this thing that i can't turn back 
and I can't go ahead and now the bike is stuck or it's got some mechanical trouble and you know I get myself into a situation like that. I don't really think so much about falling and breaking my leg. Maybe maybe I should more. Either scenario would kind of freak me out a little bit, especially since you travel on your own. It's not like there's a second biker with you who can run back for help. So either being stuck with out water or broken leg or something. I mean, you made the decision to go to Africa and basically spent 20 months there by yourself with, as you said, not that great of off-road skills. Was there any part of you that went, what the fuck am I doing? Not really enough to make me think twice about it. There were times when I was looking at a trail going, yeah, maybe this isn't such a good idea. But in general, no, I don't think I ever really second-guessed myself much as far as my choices in the big picture. I think I, for the most part, I can't really figure out a better way to spend my time right now. And this is a good way as any. And so I'm just going with it. And whatever happens, happens at this point. It's not an easy thing by any means, what you're doing. Amazing, but... I'm sure it's not always easy. No, and I, I was I was thinking of that the other day. It, it's definitely a more labor-intensive kind of life, just considering every every evening when I get to wherever I'm staying, the unloading and loading of the bike, and if I'm camping, pitching up and cooking and cleaning and washing and doing all the things. It involves more work, but I guess I've sort of adapted to it, and I enjoy a lot of that as well, and I get easily bored. So doing all those things and seeing a new place on a regular basis kind of keeps me engaged and keeps me interested. And, and to be honest, the, the danger factor does the same. I can see that. Even if you've got the same basic routine, you know, you get to a place, you set up the count, you're still in a new place and have been all sorts of new right. things during the trip to get there. So I guess none of it can really get that boring. Yeah. I mean, there, there have definitely been times when I feel like I've slipped into a routine and it did get a bit boring. I can think of when I was in Europe, a couple of years ago after coming from South America, the sort of culture shock going from the third world back to the first, there didn't seem to be the same level of venture and intensity that I had experienced in South America. And so there were some times there when I was bored. But even so, like you said, the scenery changes and the people change, and then that helps. So what is your preference when you're on the road? Are you usually setting up camp or looking for hostels, or does it just depend on where you are? It, it depends a lot on where I am and what I'm in the mood for for. If I'm feeling antisocial and I'm, I, I get tired of people sometimes, I'll go camp. But if I do that for a couple of nights, then I'm going to feel social again and I want to go have some beers and talk to somebody. And so then I'll go to a hostel and stay in a dorm or something like that. And then sometimes I get tired of that and I want a private room to myself. And so I'll go do that. So I kind of keep a balance. And that also kind of averages out the budget, you know, the combination of camping and dorms and a private room keeps things pretty manageable. What is your budget when you're traveling? So when I was in Africa, and it's been the same here so far, I try to keep it around 30 US dollars a day. That would include accommodation, food, and fuel for the bike, and maybe a couple of beers. So like here, for example, since I haven't been riding, fuel hasn't been a factor. So I've, I've got a private room in a hostel, and it's about 17 US dollars a night. And a meal here is about three dollars and breakfast is included so 
there's you know twenty five dollars or so, and then add on whiskey and pipe tobacco, and it comes out to about thirty bucks. I can't even fathom living on that much a day when I'm on the road. I only ever stay in campgrounds when I'm traveling, and it's still it just it adds up between. Then again, I'm, we're two people, and we're always two bikes for gas and two people to feed and a campground, but we're paying for the campground. Right. But still, trying to keep a budget around that, even double that, seems nearly impossible. Well, in Europe, it is. If I'm traveling in Europe, it goes to about 50. So like here, for example, a dorm bed is nine euro. In Europe, a dorm bed is going to be 20 or 25, depending on the place. And then you still have your fuel and food and you know, eating out in Europe is more expensive. Everything's more expensive. So yeah, the $30 really only works in the third world. Would you consider Turkey third world? No, and it's oddly European. Sorry, sorry. That, that's a horrible question. No, it's actually that's actually a really good question, though, because it's the pricing is about the same as what I would pay for things in Africa. But it's like I'm in Antalya right now and it's a very European city. So it's kind of the best of both worlds here. Although I hear that as you go east in Turkey, it becomes a lot less developed and much more Middle Eastern than European. But I haven't gotten that way yet, so I don't know. Okay, kind of back to the coronavirus thing, because that's what's keeping you where you are now, right? right. This is the whole reason you're not spending money on gas at the moment and you're staying in a single room and you're... What town are you in again? Antalya. So it's um, it's in the south on the Mediterranean coast. It's a, it's a big tourist okay. town. So with all the restrictions that many countries are starting to put in place where hotels are being closed down and stuff like that, I mean, are, are you worried at some point that you're going to be kicked out of where you're at? No, I think I'll be okay here because the owner of the place lives here as well. And I'm the only guest at this point. And so I think they'll just find a way to let me be. And it seems that the the Turks aren't quite so strict on the regulations. I, right now, the um, cafes, restaurants, bars, barbershops, all the things are closed, but you can still get takeaway food. You can still walk around outside. The public parks and places like that are closed, but walking down the street to go to the shop or, or go get lunch is no problem. Um, there's apparently restrictions on traveling in between cities within the country, which I haven't seen because I haven't left the city since I got here. But all in all, it doesn't seem like it's it's so strict and so tight. So I'm not worried too much that it's going to affect me. What about your visa? Yeah, that's another thing. I've got a 90-day visa, which is good till the end of May. I'm hoping that I can get out of here before then. But if not, I really don't have a choice. The land borders are closed and there's no flights. So I think I can reasonably plead that I was stuck and I couldn't leave even if I wanted to. But yeah, I'll see how that plays out when I try to cross the border getting out of here. Even with an American passport, you can't get a, a flight back to the States? Well, for a time, up until about a week ago, there were, there were five flights running out of Istanbul, and two of them went to the States, to New York and D.C., but I think it was last Friday they suspended all of those as well. So there is literally no way out of here right now. So yeah, I've got no choice. Hopefully, if I do overstay the visa and I when I'm leaving, they'll be understanding or at least be somewhat apathetic. I kind of feel like that's the situation in a lot of places at the moment, is that each country has to be understanding of who was trapped in their borders at the time that everything was closed down. Otherwise, otherwise it's just a fucking shit show. I don't have a better way of putting that. <laughs> well, no, and it is a shit show. I was in contact with a Dutch couple who are stuck in Iraqi Kurdistan 
and have been for the last month or so because the border was shut. And there's another American guy on a bike in Istanbul, same situation. So yeah, it's just a mess. But we're, you know, I found that most less developed countries have a really more liberal system or attitude when it comes to visas and things. Like I overstayed my visa in South Africa and they were really friendly and nice about it. They just put me on a list that I couldn't come back for a year. And they're like, well, we're going to stamp this in your passport and have a nice day. That doesn't sound liberal and open about it. That sounds the same like what the UK does or what the US does to Canadians. Oh, you overstayed your visa? get the fuck out. But they did ban you from going back. That's kind of extreme. Well, yeah, but they, they banned me from going back, but their system was down, which it was always down. And so I don't know if the information ever actually got into the system. And even if it did, I had a second passport that if I wanted to go back in, I could. So I wasn't so worried about it. You have dual citizenship or just multiple passports? Just uh, a second in a, from America, just kind of as a backup. Are you even allowed to have two? Yeah, not many people know about it or do, but it's a, it's a relatively common thing. Really? Yeah. I assumed that that would be completely illegal because what stops you then from selling your second passport on a black market and letting somebody borrow your identity to go back and forth? Well, I mean, I figure most people wouldn't want to sell their identity. Depends on how much you need cash. Well, true. <laughs> but, um, I mean, there are always other things <laughs> aside from identities. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you're really planning on living in the States at the moment. So you sell the second passport, and even if they run your credit score into the drain or steal a few cars, or it's not like you're going back. Right. Not in that way. You'll be fine. Right, yeah. No, it's, uh, that's, yeah, it's fine. I mean, realistically, do you see yourself going back anytime, any? What I mean is not going back for a visit. I mean, like moving back and putting an end to the traveling. I don't know. I mean, to answer your question at this point, no. But I can't really see myself living anywhere at this point. I still want to keep traveling. So at the point, I'm sure it will happen that I'll get tired of this and want to, to settle somewhere and have my own space, then maybe America might start looking more attractive. Would you go back to California? I definitely wouldn't live in Fresno where I had lived and grew up. Why? Fresno and I don't get along so well anymore. Um, we've My worldview has changed quite a lot since I lived there, and it doesn't really mesh with most of the people who still do live there. It's a small town in a very kind of I don't know, closed-minded, I think, is a is a bit harsh, but it's just, it's a narrower worldview, and I have a hard time relating. So I think I would need to find a, a bigger city, a more cosmopolitan place. Can you think of any offhand that might fit? I like London, but it's really expensive to live there, and the weather stuff. I, I do like New Orleans. I've been there a couple times, but only for a few days at a time. I'd like to go there and maybe stay a month or two and see how I like it. Well, New Orleans, you can kind of get the best of both worlds because you can live, you know, on the other side of the lake and have that backdoor nature feel. And then you're less than an hour's drive from going into the city. So I would probably do it. I'd probably do the opposite. I would probably live in the city and then be the short drive out into nature. But the nature smells so good. Yeah, and New Orleans smells like piss. But I like the idea of being able to walk from my house to a bar 
and back. But again, depending upon which neighborhood you live in, you can do that even on the other side of the lake. I keep saying lake, and right now yeah. I can't think of whether or not it's a lake or it's a river. Well, there's a river and a lake. There is. I'm, I'm thinking about the bridge that crosses over and takes you towards Lacombe. And of course, now my mind is blank, but that's where I'm from. I should know this. Yeah, I know. I was just going to say. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not going to lie. This COVID virus that is going around is really rotting my brain. Swear <laughs> has leaked out my ear in the middle of the night and just gone, you don't need me. It's fine. We'll lighten the load a little bit. <laughs> yeah, see, it's too much binging on Netflix. But I don't binge on Netflix. I've got this very strict thing of... I'm not going to start my day watching TV. I'm going to start my day, have healthy breakfast, exercise, try and do something creative. And then in the evening, I'll start watching TV. I don't want to get into this thing of a screen 24 hours a day. Yeah. What is your routine at the moment? How the hell are you coping with this? <laughs> um, kind of in the same way. So I've been trying to learn Russian for the last, I don't know, year or so in preparation for going to Russia. So any good with languages? No, I suck at languages. I'm American. <laughs> Russian is not exactly the easiest language to pick up. No, it's it's pretty difficult. But my family heritage is Russian. It doesn't automatically mean that you could just speak Russian. Oh, no, it doesn't at all, because I, I, I definitely can't automatically just speak Russian. But I, I did remember some of the words from my grandparents speaking it when I was a kid. And I kind of have had a feel for the, the accent and some of the pronunciation already. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a very difficult language. And that's why I've been studying it for a year and I still don't think I can speak it. Like, what do you have down? Can, can you count? Can you ask for directions? Where, where would you say you're at? Well, it's hard to say because I know all the words for those things and I can say them, but I've never actually had a conversation in Russian because I haven't run into any Russians. And so I haven't had any practice. So I don't really know how it would actually work. Well, ask for directions in Russian, not the fact that I'll know what you're saying, but go on, let's hear it. Oh, uh, directions to where? Anywhere, the, the library. I don't know how to say library. <laughs> I'm sure you learned that one. So where is, is just Gidea. So you could say Gidea, whatever. Restaurant is restaurant. So Gidea restaurant, where is the restaurant? Or like, my name is, is uh, Minya Zavut, Daniel. So yeah, I know those things. And I can, I can carry on the basics. I mean, not that I know that many Russians, but the accent's not bad. It doesn't sound like, like a grating American accent trying to pull these these words off right yeah and i think that's where my heritage actually pays off for me but if it makes you feel any better i've been in greece 10 years plus now and i am half greek and my greek is still shady at the best of times yeah but you still do fine with it i mean i've heard you speak greek fine with it until there's any sort of like pressure on the situation and then then all of it goes out the window and my frustration just takes over and my my mouth gets stuck and I'm like, nope that's it no more greek <laughs> yeah but then again, I suck at languages. Yeah, it, and I, I'm, I'm not great at them either. Some people, I think, have a natural ability, and I, I just don't. But I also wasn't, I, like most Americans, I wasn't exposed to any other languages until I was, I don't know, 14 or 15, which is too late. But they don't start you on Spanish earlier than that? 
No, I, I, my first Spanish class was in high school. So I was, yeah, 14, 15, really 15. Yeah, that sucks. And I was, I mean, I didn't care. So I, I if I had actually applied myself to it, I, I could have learned it, but I didn't. So I, I had to relearn Spanish when I traveled Central South America and, and my Spanish was awful. I could get what I needed, but I couldn't have a conversation and, and that really sucked. But as long as you could ask for beer and ask for help, I think you were okay, right? Yeah, but then if I ask for beer and they tell me where to go and I don't understand, then it's it's kind of useless. But especially depending upon what country you're in, some people, some cultures, they speak so fast. Even if you've got a grasp of the language, once they go at those speeds, it's it. You're not going to catch anything. All the words just blur together. Well, yeah, and that was the weird thing is that the, the dialects and the accents kind of changed from country to country. And I was moving pretty fast at that time. So I, I might only spend like a week or two in Nicaragua. After that week or two, I got pretty good with the language and I felt like I could get around and communicate well enough. And then I crossed the border into Costa Rica, I think it was. Well, they speak more English there than Spanish, but the dialect of Spanish changed. And so I had to relearn all over again. And then I finally got it by the time I was leaving and then it happened again. So that, that got a bit frustrating. <laughs> Can I actually picture you kind of frustrated and irritated and trying to communicate <laughs> what the hell is going on and the whole game has just changed on you? Yeah, like I, I remember I had just crossed into Argentina and there was a truck had jackknifed in the middle of the highway and so the traffic was backed up on both sides for miles and so I went around and went right up to the front and there was a cop standing there and I asked him if I could pass and he said something and I didn't catch the word and he was asking if I if my bike was okay to drive around on the grass and the word he used for grass was not the word that I knew for grass and so there was this whole thing of both of us going what what for a couple of minutes until he pointed and I said oh you're talking about that yeah that's fine and I went by but yeah it was those little things <laughs> sorry I've got the mental image to go with that. It's kind of so out of all of these places that you've been, actually this question's two parts. One, which was your favorite place and which was your worst? Okay, so my my worst was easily Ethiopia. I really didn't like that place. You've told me this before, but you should probably say this again so other people can know why. <sighs> Yeah, this is a this is a long and convoluted conversation. The short version of it is, for whatever reason, and I don't understand, it's just another another level of. I don't know, rudeness and aggression. I mean, as we would ride by on motorbikes, little kids would throw rocks and sticks at us for no reason other than that apparently we were foreigners. The level of, of overcharging and trying to cheat foreigners for things like the price of gasoline and food and everything is higher. Walking down the street, people just shout at you. It's not a good atmosphere. It's not a good place to be. And I, I say that knowing that people have gone there and had great experiences, but people have also had the same kind of experiences me so just because I had that experience it's not a cookie cutter scenario you know you going to a place and then me going right after you doesn't mean I'm gonna have the same experience that you've had true well yeah and a lot of it depends on how people travel so like if somebody flies in to Ethiopia and goes on some guided tours and things like that they're not going to have the experience of getting rocks thrown at them because they're not riding around on a motorbike and if they're with a, a guide or a local or somebody they're not going to have the experience of being cheated on the price of things at least they won't right. know about it so I mean yeah experiences are different but that doesn't mean that either is any less valid. Like I've seen a lot of 
conversations on social media by people, bikers and cyclists who post things like what I just said about the rock throwing and all that. And some people get really offended and say, oh, well, you know, our experience was not like that and it was so much better and you you must be lying. This must not be what happened to you or things like, oh, but it's it's an unfair assumption to say just because it was good for one person means it'll be good for everybody. Right. You know, that's not how it works if this is what happened to you when you went. I mean, how did you even know you were being cheated on prices? Because I I did a little bit of research on what the price of things should cost, like fuel, for example. And when they try to sell it to you for double that, it's pretty obvious. Or Or just things like, I'd, I'd go to a gas station, ask him how much it was per liter. He would tell me, okay. So he fills the tank. The number of liters is on the pump. So I do the math on my phone, come up with a number like it was 650 burr. And he goes, it's 700. I said, no, it's 650. And I'm showing him the thing. No, 700. No, it's 650, 700. And, and this sort of thing. Uh, I mean, that was the only place where, where I had people try to pickpocket me twice in two days. It just wasn't great. But that's not to say that somebody won't go and have a good time. So like a great, great example of it is when I was in Kenya, I met a group of Egyptian bikers who were riding the other way. They were going from Egypt down to South Africa. And they were telling me, how great a time they had in Ethiopia and how much they hated Sudan. My experience was opposite. I hated Ethiopia. I loved Sudan. So it's just, yeah, I think it depends a lot on the people that you happen to come across. You know, maybe the guy at the gas station's honest and isn't going to cheat you and he's going to be really friendly, in which case you have a good experience. But also I will say that after having been in Africa for almost, well, a year and a half or so at that point, my patience was starting to wear thin with all that sort of thing. And so even the little things that maybe a year prior, I would have just rushed off. By that time, they became big things. They probably became more significant to me just because I had less tolerance. But even knowing that, I still don't want to go back to Ethiopia. But even knowing that, would you have skipped Ethiopia? No, probably not, because it would have been quite a job. I mean, I, I would have had to fly over it. And I actually met some cyclists who did that. Just because they warned of what the situation could be? Yeah, they were because they didn't want to deal with the rock-throwing children. Okay. So let's take logistics out of this question. So let's assume that you could actually go around, bypass Ethiopia, and everything would be just fine. You could do it easily without having to deal with planes. Would you skip Ethiopia in that situation? Knowing what I know now, yes, I would. Because I have experienced it, I don't feel like I would need to do it again. But at the time, I had heard all the stories about kids throwing rocks and all the things. So I kind of knew that that was a possibility, but I went through anyway, and I would have done it again had I not been there previously just because, I don't know, I felt like I was, you know, I was doing a ride from, from Cape Town to Egypt and to, and to skip a whole country would have been kind of a cop-out. Was there any part of the country that made you feel like it was worth it? Well, see, the, the thing, yeah, is it's a really beautiful country. And a lot of the rides I did when I didn't have rocks thrown at me were great. There's some really beautiful scenery. And to be fair, I did meet a lot of really nice Ethiopians. So in that sense, yeah, it, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, all negative and it wasn't a total loss. But I think considering my lack of patience and I was also stuck there trying to get a visa for Sudan, which was another kind of part to the story. I was just in a bad mood most of the time. So the human part of it wasn't great, but the country itself was was fine. Yeah. Right. So to the second part of my question, which was the favorite country that you've been far? I don't know. I don't have one. That that's yeah. That's a fair question. It's the one that everybody asks me, but I don't 
have one that that sticks out. I liked Namibia in Southern Africa, but I wouldn't say that it was my favorite because I liked Colombia and Argentina as well. I liked England. I would definitely say Namibia was my favorite out of Africa. For any particular reason, what what is it that makes that stand out out of all the countries? It, it was desert, and I like desert. There are only two paved roads in the whole country, pretty much. So there was a lot of good dirt and gravel to ride. There weren't a lot of people, so I could ride all day through the desert and see nobody, but then arrive at a campsite with hot running water and electricity and sometimes a bar with cold beer and camp there. And then the next day go ride again through the desert all day and see nobody. When you say ride through the desert, you mean you're riding through the sand or they've got like graveled roads that take you through? Because sand is hard. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of sand. Yeah, and I hate sand. Most of the roads in Namibia were nice gravel. I would usually go about 100 or 120K on on the good gravel roads. And then you can get off on the little tracks that go up over the mountains and things. And even then, they're still pretty nice, hard pack, a little bit rocky sometimes, but nothing too technical. What is it about deserts that you like so much? Uh, It doesn't rain. I don't like rain. You don't like rain because you're on a bike and you don't like being wet or you don't like rain in general? I like it less because I'm on a bike. I don't mind it so much if I have a roof over my head. If I'm sitting with a cup of coffee and watching it rain, that's fine. But yeah, riding in the rain sucks. Especially once it gets inside your boots. I hate it when my toes squish. Yeah, see, I I invested in good boots because I rode for about six months with soggy, squishy boots and I didn't like it. So you're not, and I'm going to ask this question because you you have been to so many places you're not that active on social media like yeah is there any part of you that wishes you'd kept up with them a little bit more so that let's say in 10 20 years you have a record of what you did no not really I don't take a lot of pictures to begin with just because I usually don't do justice to whatever I'm taking a picture of. And I would rather kind of be in a place and experience it instead of documenting it for later. Don't you think you can do both? I mean, even if let's, let's take Facebook and Instagram and whatever else out of the equation, just for you, wouldn't you like to have something to look back on? I don't know. I've I've got my, my pictures from South America and and from Europe and I hardly ever look at them. Maybe at some point I will. Yeah. I guess you haven't stopped traveling yet. So you don't have the need to reminisce. You're still experiencing new things. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's the thing is if I'm reminiscing, it's because I feel like I want to be back there doing it and I would rather just be going forward and doing new things. I don't know. For me, I like to look back on, you know, because I make those those silly little videos, but I like to look back on them one because I can find like if I'm in a funk, it will inspire me to go out and try and do something again. And two, there are things that I forget for as breathtaking as some places are and how engraved they are into my memory. There are a whole bunch of little details that, you know, you just kind of gloss over at some point. You forget they happened. Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I've I've gone home from trips, and I've thought, I wish I took my camera out more. I wish I had a photo of that. I wish I had something to look at. Yes, I really don't have those thoughts. Oh. But you still haven't stopped traveling yet. Yeah, it could be. I I think a lot of it is I've become pretty 
jaded and blase about things because I've I've seen a lot and I'm just not as easily impressed anymore. I, I, I took a lot more photos when I first started when I was in South America and I, I kept a notebook for the first year or so and I wrote something in it pretty much every day because it was all new and fresh and exciting and it was sort of this culture shock of not so much changing countries but changing lifestyles. You know, I went from living in the same place all my life to now living on a motorcycle and so there were all these things I was doing and thoughts and all that I was writing down and then over time it kind of became routine and the things that used to be so exciting and interesting were still interesting but it was the same kind of the same thing I was doing you know funny I was talking when Tim and I were traveling I asked him because I have this thing that happens all the time where I'm writing and I see something a landscape or I don't know a building or an intersection or something and it reminds me of a place where I've been previously and I asked him if that ever happened to him he goes yeah all the time and so I think it kind of takes the, the sort of I don't know novelty isn't maybe the right word but that sort of sense of something new and and exciting it's not so new and exciting because it reminds me of the thing that I saw two months ago or last year or whenever it was so yeah it just doesn't have the same effect anymore fair enough Again, not every person's the same. And speaking of Tim, he's the polar opposite of you. He takes a photograph of practically everything. Right, but he also makes money from that. Right, but I think there's a part of him that needs to be playing with his camera. He needs to be documenting what he's doing. I think there's a part yeah. of him that actually gets really distressed when he can't. Again, I'm working on an assumption here, but that's how I imagine it. No, and that, that that's, I mean, I think that's realistic because he, he does like to document things. But yeah, I mean, th some people are like that. One of my buddies back home when we would travel together was always stopping to take pictures and I would get all impatient because <laughs> I just want to go for a ride. The reason I'm laughing is because when Panayoti and I travel, I'm the one who takes the photos. You know, I've got the camera, but usually if it's in the middle of summer and it's 40 degrees out and I'm sweating my balls off inside my suit, the last thing I want to do is stop and spend more time in the sun right. and sit around trying to take photos especially when I'm getting frustrated with the photos I'm taking. And he's always the one who's like, yeah, come on, let's stop. This is really beautiful. And I, <laughs> I'll never forget, we were traveling. It was the first big trip that we had done together. And we were, and it was winter. I mean, there was snow everywhere. And we had just crossed over this mountain. We were going 10 kilometers an hour. We couldn't see two meters in front of our face. <laughs> Freezing. I mean, fucking freezing. I couldn't feel any of my body. And we come to a bend coming down the other side of the mountain and he pulls over the bike and he looks at me. He's like, you want to take photos now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> All that's going through my head is like, are, are, are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> I want a hot bath. I want to feel my appendages again. I do not want to be taking photos. <laughs> What am I going to say to him? So we stop, we take the photos, and I'm really hating him in this moment. And then, of course, I see them later, and I'm so happy I have them. Yeah. It would never cross my mind to be, yeah, I'm miserable right now. Why don't, why don't we stop? Why don't I take some more pictures? <laughs> He's always the one doing it. So 
Well, maybe that's what I should do then. Maybe when I, I should make a point to stop and take pictures when I'm miserable. Maybe. I don't know. But he'll, he'll stop us like 10, 15 times on our way to get somewhere to fly the drone or ask me to take a few photos. And for as annoyed as I can be in the moment, because I've lost half my body weight and sweat and I'm ready to pass out, I'm always happy I have it later. And yeah. You know, if it wasn't for him, I don't think I would take any pictures. I really don't. I think I'd be too pissed off. <laughs> no, I'm not even kidding. I would be too pissed off in that moment to think, hmm, this is this is a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, like with when I was traveling with Tim and he was taking pictures, I like those pictures, but I don't know, maybe it's because I'm just not so good at photography. My pictures usually suck and it never can convey the feel of what I actually saw when I was there. And so maybe that's part of why I just don't bother. I get that. There's a lot of times where I'm just frustrated in my inability to capture something the way it should be captured. Yeah. Sorry, switching subjects. I'm like, uh, I won't have any leeway from one to the other. There won't be any smooth transitions. Just what else do I want to know? <laughs> yeah. No, that's fine. I don't do smooth and polished very well either. Do any writers do smooth and polished? Any people who travel? Can they? I think the social media people do. Like the, you know, the the, the ones that have 100,000 followers and things. Yeah, but that's still, that's over social media. When you actually have to interact with a person one-on-one, -on -one. haven't you spent so much time on your own that you're kind of incapable of remembering how humans interact? At times, yes. Lately, I've been around people enough that I've stayed socialized, but there were times in Africa where I was camping a lot and yeah you um it's funny I was staying at this place in Malawi and I was talking to some cyclists about how you become kind of feral in the process of this where you like the social norms and things you just kind of forget them because you don't need them and you forget how to talk and how to act with people or just like things that are may or may not be appropriate like you know if I'm camping somewhere and I need to change my pants I'm just going to change my pants and if there are people around well you know, there are people around it's not the sort of thing you would do in you know civilized company but you forget those kind of things yeah i'm not sure if it would be my manners that would go but in that sort of situation i mean those suits they stink on the inside i, th I think the one thing that would stop me from saying hmm i'll just change my pants here the fact that I wouldn't want to subject anyone else to that smell. Ah, uh, but this was Africa. And so no matter how bad I smelled, and there were times when I smelled really bad, somebody close by smelled worse. So yeah, so that that, that wasn't really much of a consideration. And, and also there were usually farm animals nearby, so it wasn't, it just wasn't a thing. Something was masking the smell of it. Right, right. Uh, but you're, you're right. Those, yeah, riding pants create the foulest odor known to man. I don't, I don't know what it is about that stuff. It's because it's all synthetic and it holds yeah. the smell and it gets in there. And even after a couple tumbles in the machine, it still holds that smell. It's still there. Yeah. All you need is five minutes back in those pants and they stink again. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what it, what Climb uses in their knee pad material, but it's the knee pads that stink the worst in these things. Oh, and you can't wash those either. No, no. Like I, I can kind of wipe them off with water, but even that doesn't get it. And so even if I wash the pants, I put stinky knee pads back in and it just permeates through the whole thing. Oh, I know that smell. That is not a nice smell. No. Maybe submerging them in baking soda. 
might help. You know, the same way you do with boxing gloves. Pour a little baking soda in them and it absorbs all the smell. Oh, yeah. It'll just be an issue in two days. I did that years ago when a friend of mine puked in the back seat of my truck. And I've used baking soda in my boots. I didn't think about it in the pants, though. Yeah. Well, just for the knee pads, since you can't throw those in the washing machine without destroying their integrity. Right. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. So out of all this time that you've been traveling, do you have a moment that sticks out to you for your best and your worst moments on the journey? Hmm. Interesting question. Best and worst in terms of best and worst experiences or? It can be whatever best and worst means to you. Hmm. Okay. I think um, for the worst, it wasn't any particular incident. Well, maybe. When I was up in Egypt, it was the end of my Africa time. And I was, uh, like I said, I was out of patience. And I was just kind of sick of everything about Africa at that point. And I was in Luxor, Egypt. And it's a touristy kind of place. And you couldn't walk 10 feet without somebody trying to sell you something. And I was just tired of having to tell people to fuck off. I was tired of being bothered. And I was walking down the street and there was a police station with some barriers like down the middle. And apparently you're supposed to walk on the right side of the barriers. And I was on the left. And so these cops start not really shouting at me, but telling me, hey, you need to go over there. And I'm like, why can't I just walk this way? No, you have to go over there. Okay, well, I'll go through right there. No, you can't go through. You have to go around. So they wanted you to go back the way you came so that you could walk back down on the right side of the barriers. Exactly. <laughs> and this was just piling up on everything else that I was tired of. And so I was like, fine. I turned around and I cursed or something. And as, as I started walking away, I heard one of the guys rack the action in his rifle because everybody carries Kalashnikov there. And that set me off even more. And I turned around and I pointed at my forehead and I was like, put it right there, man, if you're going to do something. And all of them like got this shocked look on their face like no 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 and then I turned around and walked away and I was thinking wow I just dared a cop to shoot me in Egypt I really should probably evaluate things at this point like no offense but that's a pretty dumb fucking thing to do well at first blush, yes. But after having a good bit of experience with African cops, I realized they weren't going to do anything to me, let alone shoot me. So it wasn't really a risky move. It was just more of a proverbial flipping the bird to authority. But still, that was a pretty low point just for me personally in the way I was viewing the world and other people at that time. Luckily, a couple of weeks later, I flew off to Greece and things were a bit, I mean, it was Europe, so I didn't have those things to deal with. And then I kind of calmed down. But yeah, I, I'd say that was probably one of me at my worst times. As for the best, I don't know about one particular instance, but the times that I enjoyed the most were when I was able to ride in a remote area and be on my own and self-sufficient and there'd be a bit of an element of risk because there's nobody around. Like thinking of a, an area in, in northwestern Kenya, which is relatively untraveled, and there are some tribal wars between different groups of herdsmen and the herdsmen all carry Kalashnikovs and people get shot on a regular basis. And I rode through there on my way up to Ethiopia. And I, I spent a couple days in kind of going through what it would be this kind of backcountry kind of, not wilderness, but it was sort of an outlaw land. There wasn't a lot of police presence and not a lot of order. It was kind of wild. And I enjoyed that. It was a nice departure from the, the backpacker lodges and campgrounds and places where I had been staying. Felt like proper traveling. Like, I don't know, not exploration, but it was, it was a good adventure. It's funny that that would be what sticks out to you as one of the good memories 
is this this outlaw wasteland where there's tribal wars between farmers and stuff and they're carrying guns. What about that? I know you answered this already, but reiterate it for me. What about that stands out as good? Well, I, I think people who do this sort of thing, traveling alone or even, you know, with other people, but, you know, overlanding long distances are looking for that kind of unexplored frontier kind of experience. And unfortunately, these days, the world has all been discovered. There really, that doesn't exist anymore. But to be in places like that in Kenya, where you, you, there's a taste of that, the kind of Wild West feel about the area and about the people you meet. And like, there was this little town up there where it was pretty much just one dirt street with sheet metal shacks on each side. And like, there were some little shops and some, you know, in quotes, restaurants and hotels. And then at the end of the of this dirt road was the big hotel with a big gate and you go in. And as I, I was riding down this street, I felt like like a cowboy in a Western because everybody is looking to see, you know, the stranger who they don't know. Rolling up to town, you're not sure what to make of you. Yeah. And it looks like the Wild West because it's just these shacks on a dirt street. And, you know, and there's there's farm animals and people running around and kids. And it, it just, I don't know, it, it, it was uncivilized. It was untamed. It, it, it felt like an adventure. And that's been hard to find for me because everything has been so kind of dumbed down for tourism. You know, like I said, you go to a campground and they have running water and a bar and you can get a steak and chips and a draft beer, which... I'm not at all complaining about because I enjoy those things, but it's nice to go out and there be no place to stay. So you camp in the bush and go into these little towns like this. It's it's something that I haven't been able to find in a lot of places. And so when I do, it sticks out. That actually sounds really nice. And when you find yourself in these sort of situations, because you said you go off camp in the bush and what sort of what sort of staples do you take back with you for camping? What do you feed yourself when you're doing this? And I'm really curious. Uh, I do a lot of rice and beans, cans of baked beans and, and rice, peanut butter sandwich for breakfast. These are things that are readily available to find everywhere, though. I mean, rice, yes, but peanut butter, canned beans. So if in the I would stock up in the big cities where you could find most of this stuff. Oh, okay. Like in, in a lot of places, peanut butter was hard to find. But even so, you could still find somewhere or Nutella or something like that. And especially in East Africa, um, because of English colonialism, baked beans are everywhere. Oh. Yeah, it's it, it, it's strange the colonial influences. Like in, in French West Africa, there's baguette and omelet everywhere. And in the East, yeah, you get Heinz baked beans and, you know, full English breakfast everywhere. I really hadn't even thought about that. Funny. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of strange. What is the weirdest food item that you've come across that you've looked at it in, in a supermarket or mini mart or wherever it is you are and you thought that does not belong here like it is so out of place i don't know about out of place but the thing that was probably the least appetizing for me was in morocco the berber the bedouin who live out in the desert they do this thing with a goat's head where they have the the whole head and they take a propane torch and they roast some meat while it's still on the head with the hair and all and then slice it off and put it in a sandwich or something, and that's lunch. So you'd go through the market, and there'd be the goat head guy with his head on the table doing this thing, and the smell of burnt goat hair is just permeates, and it's the least appetizing thing that 
you could possibly think of when you know thinking of food so that was probably the worst only the hair throws me off on that i mean finding goat or lamb heads here is so easy sure yeah no and it wasn't it wasn't so much the head it was just what they were doing with it and the smell of hair is, is it's fucking awful yeah and i remember reading a blog by somebody who I don't, may have been traveling on a bike, but they were in the desert doing some sort of a desert safari kind of thing. And they were with a Berber guide. And so at one point they were eating this stuff and whoever was writing this blog was trying to be, you know, the, the sort of positive worldly citizen of the earth kind of guy who was like, and the smell was really pungent, but you know, it was, it was a great cultural experience. <laughs> And I'm thinking, no, man, you could say it smells like shit because it's burnt hair. What, you mean you didn't leave a comment saying I call bullshit? Yeah, no, I didn't feel the need to. <laughs> Did you try any of it? No, God, no. Yeah, you, even if I was hungry, as soon as I smell it, you, you lose your appetite. I've tried plenty of things that smell bad and end up tasting good. Yeah, I, I'm not that adventurous when it comes to that sort of thing, though. Yeah, but I remember specifically asking you if there was anything you wouldn't eat, and you seemed pretty open to whatever it was I was going to make. Right, well, because I, I figured my chances of getting something, you know, like burnt goat hair in Athens were pretty slim, so I, I trusted you. Maybe I should be careful now. Was there a time when you actually ate something and thought, not enjoying it? Um, nothing comes to mind right now. Yeah, if it was really that bad, I think it would stand out. Yeah, I mean, I, most of the time, at least when I was in Africa, I was just happy that I could get food. And so whatever it was, I was eating. And most of the time it was so simple. It wasn't like, you know, any sort of, you know, I don't know, exotic kind of awful cooked in, you know, the brain of goat's juice and reduced to a puree. It was just like, here's some meat and rice. I don't think you're looking for Michelin star chefs out there. <laughs> I was reading something by Bourdain and he was saying how after he had traveled and done his TV shows quite a bit and eaten all these weird things, everywhere he went, people were trying to feed him the weirdest thing they had. And he was like, like, sometimes I just want like a burger or something. I don't want to eat the smoked liver of whatever animal, but I guess he made a, he kind of made a reputation for that. Oh, I love him. If you watch him cook though, he likes the, the simple, rich foods, at least when he does it himself. Or maybe that was just a phase, but oh, I love him. Such a crush on him. <laughs> oh, there is no point denying it. Such a crush. Yeah, I, I, I can't say I had a crush on him, but I do like his writing. You could have had a man crush on him. It would have been fine. <laughs> when it comes to food, you know, it really showed how much he cared, how much he appreciated what it was. And I liked his, his openness to try almost anything. And it sucks for him that nobody would serve him anything normal afterwards, but the willingness to try. Yeah. Yeah, that was something my mother always said to me. And she's like, you know what? If you don't like it, you could spit it out, but you have to try it. <laughs> yeah. There's always that moment where you still spit it out and you think, am I going to get smacked for this? <laughs> well, yeah. And the thing like when in, in East Africa, there were a lot of, I, I came across a lot of Europeans and Americans who went there to do some NGO project to save the world. And a lot of them were vegetarian and vegan and, and all these things by choice. And it, it seemed obscene to me to be in, a, in Africa where food and the availability of it is an issue and having food on the table in front of you and say, no, I don't eat that. And so I kind of just in, just as resistance to that whole thing, I would just like, give me everything. 
I'll eat whatever you have. I don't care. I'm sorry, but that, that just sounds like very hypocritical on so many levels. That attitude of going somewhere where food is a legitimate issue. Many people do not have enough and sitting there refusing. Not because of actual health issues, but just refusing. We're not talking about their moral standing is on that issue in, in Western countries. We're talking about culture raise their animals yeah. and care for them and they're out in nature and they kill what they need not just to waste it there's something about that that really doesn't sit right with me yeah and it's i mean i, I don't care what somebody chooses to eat or not eat but it, a, a lot of these people didn't realize the privilege they have of being able to choose right and they're you know self-righteously lecturing Africans about how bad red meat is. Come on, man. That's what I have the issue with. If you want to be vegan or vegetarian at home where you have the choice and everything's easy and you're doing it to lessen your impact on the environment, that's fine. You do that. You do what you feel is right. But we're not talking about a Western country. Right. And then again, what the fuck do I know? I haven't been there. How can I pass judgment? Well, that's just the thing, though, is that you realize that you haven't been there, so you can't pass judgment. Most people don't. They apply the same standards of the Western world to everywhere else in the world, and the standards just don't work. Whether we're talking about food or education or economics or marriage or any of these things, like it's just a, it's a different system and a different way of life. It, you can't put our standards on that way of life. And that's, to me at least, that's what causes a lot of problems on that continent is people coming in from the outside and saying it should be done this way. But you can't even do that state to state in the U.S. Not every two states are the same. Right. You know, people's values and their way of life changes can change very dramatically. Let's say from New York to Birmingham. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not saying one is better than the other because it's not. It depends on who you are. But the, not accepting the fact that somebody else's way of life is going to be different in trying to impose your way of life onto them. Right. I, I think we should all be aware to a certain degree that you just can't do that. Yeah, but we're, for some reason, humans are really good at doing just that. Yeah, that's half the issues we have in this world. <laughs> yeah, that's most of them, actually, I think. Whether it's my religion is better than yours, or my indoor plumbing is superior to your... Yeah. Okay, so I have one last question for you, and then I think we should wrap this up just yeah, because... Yeah, you're going to have a lot of shit to go through. How much longer do you think you can sit in one place before you completely lose your mind? Yeah, well, I don't really have a choice. That's what's... That's what's keeping me sane at this point. The fact that I don't have a choice and the fact that most of the rest of the world is in the same situation as I am. So yeah, I, I'm just going to stay here as long as I have to. I've downloaded a lot of books on my Kindle, so I'm going to try to become all cultured and shit while I'm here. And yeah, I don't know. I may be talking to you in a month and be well on my way to insanity, but you know, you could document that in your book. I've already started reaching levels of insanity. I briefly went out to run an errand and saw a friend, and I realized that I was shouting at this poor person, not even meaning to. I've just forgotten how to communicate in a normal way. I was shouting about my frustrations in the middle of the street, no less. Like a crazy person. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and to be fair, I don't think either of us are 
quite sane to begin with. So we're, I feel like we're kind of starting from a disadvantage here. Well, I'll ask you again in a month or even a week how you feel. Yeah, you as well. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. I really appreciate this and I actually really enjoyed myself. Yeah, no, this was fun. Great. I'm so glad. Okay, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to give it a like and subscribe for the next one that comes out. If you'd like to know more about Daniel, I'll be sure to include links for both his blog and his Instagram in the description.